Okay, Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Now, I really like this psalm, uh, and that's not a surprise, but, but I think there'll be some things that you all uh, will really be excited about, too. I was but, supposed to know which ones you didn't like. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I hope all of them, because God wrote them. That's a good criteria. Okay, for the choir director set to L. Shashnavim, and uh, the, the ESV has according to the lilies, uh, Edith, which the ESV has a testimony of Asaph, or a psalm of Asaph, the New American Standard, Psalm 80. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with with the prayer of your people? You have fed your people with the bread of tears. You made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nation and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its uh, boughs. Boughs or bows? Okay, I always have trouble with that and I ask every time and I'll still have to ask again. But okay, verse 11. It was sending out its branches to the sea, its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats its way, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again. Now we beseech you, look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine, even the shoot which has... Uh, which your right hand is planted, and the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then he shall not turn, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us. What repeated idea or repeated phrase did you see? Restore us. Okay. Restore us in in, in several other lines with that. But but, but verse 3, O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. That's stated in verse 3, in verse 7, and in verse 9. God is addressed uh, a little differently in each of those verses. But each time you have the same kind of refrain. So this repeated statement in Psalm 80 verse 3, in 80 verse 7, in 80 verse 19 is going to be a key in understanding Psalm 80. Any other observations you would make on that initially? God of hosts. Okay, he speaks of God as the God of hosts in verse uh, 7, in verse 14, uh, in verse 19, the Lord God of hosts. Where did I miss one? Verse 4. Four. For O Lord God of hosts. And um, I was seeing one writer stressed how many times this was used in several different books. It's used a lot in Isaiah 1 through 39, used a lot in the book of Jeremiah. 
but particularly in the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi for their size, it's used even more. Seems like it was used more frequently after captivity. But what's the idea of God as the God of hosts? There are two basic ideas of hosts. Heaven's armies. Okay, armies is one because it is used and Mary says heaven's armies and I think that's true when we're talking about God but it's used of armies on earth for example um, it's Genesis 21 verse 22 Genesis 21 verse 22 the Bible is talking about Abimelech It says it came about Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. The word army there is the word for host. And so it refers, when it refers to God, as the armies of heaven, God of the armies of heaven. And what else does host refer to in the Bible sometimes? Angels. Angels. It may. Yeah, I, I think that might be the same kind of usage. I'm thinking of the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon. Don't worship the host of heaven, for example, in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 19. Now, which of these better fits the context? Both of them may fit, but because it's a passage where God's people seem to be weak and seem to be defeated, uh, it might be that the first idea carries more weight in this particular psalm. God as the God of the armies of heaven, a God who can defeat all of his foes. Now, in Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel. Shepherd of Israel. In verse 13 of Psalm 79. Psalm 79 verse 13. We your people, the sheep of your pasture. When we closed last time, we pointed out that it's becoming quite common in this section to end a psalm with a reference to God as shepherd and his people as sheep. Psalm 77 did that. Psalm 78 did that. Uh, and Psalm uh, 79 did that. And now this opens with a refer reference to God as the shepherd of Israel. God is the shepherd. Now, this is the first of many ties between Psalm 79 and Psalm 80. But Psalm 79, remember there was disaster in the land of Judah. And I think that to some degree, this psalm is a continuation of that disaster as it's calling God who led Joseph like a flock. Listen, O shepherd of Israel, who led your people like you led a flock. You're enthroned above the cherubim. Shine forth. What does that mean that God is enthroned above the cherubim? Well, I have New King James, and it says dwell between the cherubim, which reminds you of the mercy seat. Okay, I think that's the idea uh, that Mary mentions in 81 of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was these cherubim, or cherubim. And God says, I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. And God is often said to be enthroned here. This is where God says, I will speak with you here. But God is also said to be enthroned here in 1 Samuel 4.4, 4, in 2 Samuel 6.2. In Psalm 99, verse 1. Psalm 99 Verse 1. Look at Psalm 99 and notice what it says. It says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. 
So God is enthroned above the cherubim. The Ark of the Covenant is in a sense the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, the throne of God. He is enthroned above the cherubim. He mentions the tribes in verse 2, Ephraim. Benjamin, Manasseh, and he calls upon God, stir up your power and come to save us. Why those tribes versus others? I'm not exactly sure, uh, but maybe it is a crisis that dealt uh, a lot with these various tribes. But, O oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. The word that is used here for restore, the word that's used here in restore in these three verses is a word, in, in Hebrew it is the word shub, and that is a word we saw in the book of Judges, excuse me, in the book of Joshua, where it is used for turning to God. Uh, it is used for turning away from God. It is used for turning God turning toward us. God turning away from us. It is used in such a variety of ways. So what does it mean when God restore us? It could be, God, you bring us back to you. Bring us back into a right relationship with you. Create a revival among us, oh God. That could be the idea of this particular word in context. Any questions right there? Any any ideas that you have? I just think it's odd how a lot of the emphasis here is on God. Yes. God is faithful. These are the, these people are the ones that need to get their act straight and get their attitudes right towards God. You know, they're they're imploring them, you know, stir up your strength, save us, cause your face to shine. It is, but I, I know what you're saying. The same time, they are. It's a plea for mercy. Uh, it is a plea for mercy. Is the confession of straw of sin as strong in this psalm as I would like? No. Uh, I think verse 18 may be an indication of some kind of repentance, but the very fact that people need to be brought back to God, he may be saying it's only God who can bring it about. Um, I, I like, and, and you might disagree at first with this particular statement, but understand what... I mean from that. Uh, but one writer said that this psalmist views God as the problem, but God is also the solution to the problem. Now, what do I mean by saying that God is the problem? I'm not saying, as Gary was trying to guard against, I'm not trying to say the problem of faults with God, not with the people. Fault is with the people. But what I mean, what he meant when he said the problem is from God, God has given them over to judgment. God has handed them over to affliction. He wasn't, the writer I was reading, I know some might use that in a bad way, but he was meaning God is the one who has put them in this difficult circumstances because of their sin and their foolishness. But at the same time they realize that. Where could they go but to the Lord? Where could they turn even when suffering from his hands except to him? And I think that's pretty evident in some of the next words that we read. In verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, as Isaiah called attention to, O Lord God of hosts, how long? Will you be angry with the prayer of your people? Remember in Psalm 79 verse 5, the question was asked, How long, O Lord? We don't have much strength left. How long, O Lord? Here, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry 
with the prayer of your people. There in Psalm 79 verse 5, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? It wasn't the same word for anger in both of these passages, 79 5 and 80 verse 4, but it's the same idea. They ask the question how long, they speak of the anger of God, And how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? In verse 5, you have fed them the bread of tears. You made them to drink tears in large measure. Instead of the shepherd of Israel, in verse 1, instead of the shepherd guiding them to the green pastures and quiet waters, instead, the shepherd of Israel has led them to the bread of tears and drinking tears in large measure. And those are highly figurative ways to speak of their pain and their distress. Whatever your situation in life, hopefully, mealtime can be a source of joy. But here, even their mealtime is the bread of tears and the drinking of tears. And what I mean by God is the problem. You fed them with the bread of tears. You made them drink tears. In large measure. In verse 6, you make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Now, the word neighbors that is used in 80 verse 6 is only used about 20 times in the whole Old Testament. But it's used, it was used twice in verses that we saw last week. In 79.4, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. In 79 verse 12, return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosoms. But now here in 80 verse 6, we're an object of contention to our neighbors. Our neighbors hate us. They laugh among themselves. They, They mock us. We are a constant source of reproach and ridicule. And he says in verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. God has put them in the dilemma from which they need to be rescued, but they realize that rescue only comes from Him. What are the thoughts there, verses 4 through 7? I was thinking, like you said, you don't really see too much of a repentance in there. Um, but the fact that they've done some introspect seems to have, in order to know that God is the one who has given them this problem or caused them to yes. do what they do, and the fact that they call on Him to, to help them show some introspect on their part. And I think that's our first. The first thing we need to do, yeah. you know, when you can't always say everything bad happens to you is because you've done something bad. But yeah. that's usually where I go. If something's mm-hmm. going on wrong, yeah. I, I kind of look at my life and think, are things out of, out of whack here? You know, that God might be disciplining me for something, mm-hmm. you know. And that is not beyond, beyond possibility, as Hebrews 12 shows us. And uh, at the very least... They realize their their weakness and helplessness and that there's nowhere to go but God. Nowhere to go. Now, I especially like this next few verses in this image that he says because he describes Israel. Can you all see that board okay? It's amazing, y'all can't. But he describes Israel as a vine. Now we're gonna we're gonna look up some of these verses in a little while, but here are some verses that use that image of a vine to describe Israel. And um, 
somewhere in Hosea. Well, those are a few. There are some others that do it, but those are a few of them that do. Okay. You have removed a vine from Egypt. Okay. That's this real simple question. What's that mean? He's brought Israel out of the land of the promised land. He brought them out of Egypt right now. Second line talks about planting the promised land. You jumped ahead. You've got you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove the na- you drove out the nations. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. That refers to the conquest of Canaan. So in eighty verse eight, first part of verse eight, that's what I call verse eight A, he talks about the Exodus from Egypt. And then in verse 8b to 9, he talks about the conquest of Canaan. It is the Lord who planted that vine in the land of Canaan. So he took this vine out of Egypt and he transported it to Canaan, put it here, cleared the ground before it, did everything that the vine would produce fruit, And it says in verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shadow, the cedars of God with its boughs. So the text tells us that this grew, this grew, one writer said, like kudzu. It grew so quickly, it grew everywhere. And this vine is filling the land and it sends out its branches to the sea and to the river. Now, verse 11 in particular may deal with some of the geographical boundaries of the land. They have absolutely filled the land from the river, being a reference to the Euphrates River, to the sea, to the Mediterranean Sea. That may be a reference. Now, you don't think about a grapevine or a vine growing to cover the mountains and to hide them, or especially not to hide the cedar trees. Obviously, there is a level of hyperbole here, but it's just emphasizing the rapid growth of this vine. So God has brought the people out of Egypt. He's given them the land. He's planted this vine in Canaan. It has grown greatly. And it has filled the land. But this, this vine that God exerted so much energy on in verse 12. Why have you broken down its hedges? So that all that pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. You have exerted so much energy and so much work in bringing us up from Egypt and carefully clearing the ground to plant us in Canaan and to let it grow. Why? 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 You needed a vacation. Have you broken down... Its walls. Why is this fine that you exerted so much energy on and so much effort on? Why have you let it be destroyed? Now, there's an answer to that question. Look at Isaiah 5. Of all those passages that I put on the board about the vine. None are more important than that. Okay? Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my beloved, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his need. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it around, removed its stones, planted it with the choice vine. Now, sounds a lot like Psalm 80, doesn't it? Psalm 80 and how he cleared all the 
ground and it took root and filled the land. Psalm 80 verse 9. Here he dug it around, removed its stones, planted it with a choice vine. He does everything he can that the vine may produce. Then in verse 2, he built a tower in the middle of it. You build a tower so that you have a watchman position to look out to see if there's any damage to the vine, any problem to the vine. And in verse 2, he hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? What more could God have done that the vineyard would produce fruit? Psalm 80 doesn't have a dramatic uh, answer to this question, but, but, but it leaves us asking the same question. What more could God have done that the vine produced fruit? But listen to God's answer in verse 5. I said 5 verse 5. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its head. And it will be consumed. I'm going to break down its walls. And it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, but righteous for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. Because God was expecting good grapes, verse 2, verse 4, verse 7, but it produced only worthless grapes. Because God expected it to produce righteousness and justice, but it produced bloodshed and distress, God's removed its head. And let it be broken down. So really the answer to Psalm 80. Why have you broken down its head? That's a judgment. For the people's sin. That's clearly. The reason for it. And a boar. A wild boar. Which would have been both an unclean animal. Because pigs were unclean. And a wild. Uncontrollable animal. And I've seen these pictures of boars that people have killed uh, in Arkansas in a, a thousand pounds on them. Hey, what would you do encountering something like that in the wild if you weren't armed, prepared to defend yourself? Hey, I, I don't know. And that's the kind of animal that is just devoured this vine. That's the way they felt, no doubt. When the Babylonians came through and destroyed the temple in 587 BC. It's like a wild boar has devoured God's vine. Verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now. We beseech you. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine. All they can do is acknowledge their weakness, their helplessness, admit his power, beg his help. Look down from heaven and see, take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted. So they're using this image of the vine again. God, you planted us. You put all this care into our development and growth. Please don't abandon the vineyard now, even the shoot which your right hand is planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. So he uses the image of a vine and uses the image of a sun. Both of these are images of God's relationship with Israel.
in verse 16, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. If you were just to read verse 18, or verse 17, excuse me, in isolation, who would you think would be the man of your right hand? That, I should have said that, yeah, but I'm thinking just, if you just think in the Old Testament uh, right now. David. I, I would think of the king, yeah, the king. Would it be David or something? I would think of the king first. And obviously you all were right in saying Jesus. But I was thinking just of the Old Testament king, maybe. Um, the phrase son of man, of course, knowing that the New Testament uses the phrase of Jesus, that also attracts our attention to him. But is it the king? Is it all the people? It, it, it may be, uh, they may be bitching together because as the king goes, to a large degree, so goes the nation uh, in the ancient Near East. And he says in verse 18, We will not turn back from you, revive us, and we will call upon your name. He's saying, God, you restore us, you bring us back. We won't turn away from you again. Hmm. Have the people ever been really good at doing that? Have the people ever said, oh, God, you just save us this time and we'll never fall again? Have you ever made those promises in your life only to be repeating them some other time? Then we shall, not, we shall turn back from you, revive us, we will call upon you. O Lord God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us. In the midst of talking about causing your face to shine, we repeated the phrase, but remember when the priest pronounced the blessing, number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine upon you and give you peace. That's number 625. And you see that kind of expression. Look at Psalm 67. Psalm 67, God be gracious to us and bless us and calls his face to shine upon us. Salah. Psalm 67, verse 1. I should have called attention to that before. But what ideas do you have? Right there in those verses. We keep mentioning Israel. Are we referring to the, the whole country before it was divided, or is this more along the time of the divided kingdom? I, I, I do not know. That is a good question, and I do not know. I know there is the title to this psalm in the Septuagint. Uh, it has something to the effect of relating it to the time of the Assyrian problem. And they seem to be relating it more to Israel in the northern kingdom after the division and their problems which they experienced from Assyria and ultimately the fall of the land in about 722. That seems to be how the translators of the Greek version took it. But I'm not sure, Gary. You look at verse... Two, you do find the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh mentioned who were associated with those northern tribes. But Benjamin is usually associated with the south. I, I think there's a couple of times that they appear among the northern nations. They may have had some parts of their land that went there. But uh, as a whole, they're associated with Judah. I just keep thinking back where he says, how long will you be angry? And I was thinking, God usually is mad for about 40 to 70 years. Sometimes. Sometimes that's right. Um, but I, I have wondered too 
if Psalm 80, and this is just possibility, I'm not stating this as a definite conclusion, is kind of northern Israel's complaint along the same lines of Psalm 79 for Judah. Because Psalm 79 seems to be dealing with Judah, and Psalm 80 may be Israel. So I have wondered about that question myself, Gary, but but I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Any other thoughts? There are three portrayals of God in this psalm that are particularly interesting and that kind of dominate the psalm in one way or the other. God is shepherd, which is alluded to in verse 1. It is not... That imagery is not played out totally in the psalm, but God is said to lead, the shepherd is said to lead Joseph like a flock in verse 1. So God is shepherd is one picture of God in Psalm 80. God is also pictured as a gardener in verse 8 who is doing everything to make sure the people bear fruit. So it is a picture from the world of agriculture of God as a gardener. God is shepherd. God is gardener. And God is obviously viewed throughout the whole psalm as a warrior. As we talked about that phrase, Lord God of hosts. Lord God of hosts. So God is shepherd. God is gardener. God is warrior. All of these reveal to us various truths about who God is. And obviously, always, as we stay uh, centering on who He is, is first our focus. Okay? Okay. Now, let's talk about some various ways that we see Jesus fulfill this picture of Psalm 80. Let's still, first of all, with something right here on the board about the vine. I would encourage you all to read this passage of Isaiah. And what what I would like you to do is to compare Isaiah 27, 2-6, with Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is more of a negative picture of judgment. That is usually how the picture of a vine is used in the Old Old Testament. Usually that picture of a vine is used to talk about Israel as an unfaithful vine. Israel as a vine that was expected to produce good grapes but didn't. Isaiah 27 is a positive picture, but in some ways when you read it, keep your Bible open to Isaiah 5, because a lot of things he says about how the vine will bear fruit seem to be uh, worded the way they are as an answer to that earlier picture. So Isaiah 27, 2 through 6, to some degree answers of that picture of the vine in Isaiah 5. Verses 1 through 7. But usually when you have this picture of a vine, generally, generally it is a picture of Israel being unfaithful. Now, in contrast to them as an unfaithful vine, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the husbandman. Or my father is the gardener. Depending on what translation you're looking at. But this image of Jesus as the true vine is an answer to these verses. Which show Israel as an unfaithful vine. Jesus is the true vine. 
His father the husband. But every branch in me that bears fruit, I prunes that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that doesn't abide in me, he cast it forth. So the branch must abide in the vine. But Jesus is the ultimate answer to Psalm 80 in that picture of a vine. And so we think about a lot of images. You know, Jesus, of course, is uh, Jesus in Psalm 80 is the shepherd in 80 verse 1. And I know that you all have already been thinking about that. Just like the Lord is pictured as shepherd in Psalm 23, 1. Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10, verses 1 through 18. But don't miss how John 15 uses this image of a vine, too, as an answer to the Old Testament. So all of these efforts... To plant this vine, and the vine that didn't bear fruit ultimately finds fulfillment in the true vine, Jesus, and in Him. And in Him, we bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Him, you bear fruit. Okay? What are some other things that you see and pictures that you find Jesus fulfilling from Psalm 80? Verse 5 talks about you fed them with the bread of tears. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So, bread there different results. Okay. Good point. On a couple levels. Um, First of all, you talk about, particularly David, Jesus as the bread of life in contrast to the bread of tears. You see Jesus as the bread of life, among other places, in John 6, 35. Several times in that account, that will be emphasized. Jesus as the bread of life. But also, I want you to think about this. Could Jesus be described as eating the bread of tears? And drinking tears in large measure. I mean, Jesus is identified with terms by which God would be identified. Jesus is a shepherd. But Jesus is also, Jesus is identified in terms that Israel is identified. And that's true even for the vine. I am the vine. My father is the gardener. My father is the husband. But Jesus identifies with these terms from Israel. Jesus had to eat the bread of tears and drink tears because of our sin and our wrongdoing. Look at verse 6. You made us an object of contention to our neighbors. Our enemies laugh at us. Could Jesus have said that same thing? Could Jesus have said that same thing because of our sins and our wrongs that we have made Him to be an object of contention? The enemies laugh at Him. The point is that Jesus, Jesus experienced all these things that Israel experienced. Israel experienced them because they were an unfaithful vine. When he expected good grapes, there were only worthless ones. Jesus produced only good grapes. Or or look at the language of verses 12 and 13. You've broken down its hedges so that all who passed by could pick its fruit. Jesus, God, removed all defenses 
removed all the defenses from Jesus. All the defenses. Hey, you look at what God said to Job or God said to Satan about Job. He's in your hands. Don't put forth your hand on him. And then he says, he's in your hand, but don't take his life. God put restrictions on how Satan could deal with Job. But he doesn't with Jesus. Those restrictions were broken down. It's almost like the hedge was broken down so that all could eat its food. And the one who was God, the Lord of hosts, is subject to being devoured by wild boars. And while, and you've already pointed this out, while verse 17 may have had some reference to the king of Israel, those terms, the man of your right hand, and Jesus was being raised to God's right hand. You see that in Acts 2, 29-36. He's raised to God's right hand and the Son of Man. The most common term that Jesus uses in describing Himself, the Son of Man. Psalm 8, 4 through 6, what is man that you visit him, or the Son of Man that you care for him, and all that's quoted in Hebrews 2 and applied to Jesus. Jesus is the man of God's right hand. Jesus is the Son of Man. Who have you, you, whom you've made strong for yourself. Mary? Um, verse 1, the idea of God dwelling between the cherubim. And Jesus is our source of mercy. Okay. And really, God showed himself through Jesus to us. So he's that mediator, that connection where God was dwelling among man. Okay, very good, very good. I also thought of that verse, Mary, with that statement where he says, "What?" Oh, I thought you were saying. I thought of that too. I no, I I, I thought of the I thought of the other part too, where he says, "Shine forth." Listen to this passage. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. So, its statement is, you are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. In a sense, all of that is answered in Jesus. Not only is he the dwelling place of God with man, but also uh, in him... The light shines forth. Second Corinthians 4 6. And so many passages emphasize him as our coals of mercy and grace that um, Mary was mentioning. Gary? Okay, well, go ahead. Uh, if, is it something on that very idea? Well, yeah, I was going to say that same thing. Like at the end of verse 19, they're just begging that his face could shine forth. Jesus' whole appearance shines forth. Matthew 17, or like, you know, Acts 9, yeah. his whole appearance is shining right well, th- the light of day. Well, think about, too, yeah, his face shining the transfiguration like the sun. Right. That in a sense, that was God's face. That was Moses and Elijah specifically, but in a way to, to all of us, Gary. Uh, going back to the vine and God as the husband, and when uh, it says in verse at the end of nine, and it filled the land. The same happened with uh, Jesus with his gospel in the church. Okay. Um, 
follow in Colossians 1.23. Okay. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I Paul became a minister. So by finding we wrote Colossians, the gospel is spread to the known world. Okay. Yeah. So just like the vine filled the land, the message of salvation filled the land. And God's face. As we were saying, shining with Jesus. Um, there, 83. I'll just add those verses there. Um, well, there's, there's, there's so much. We can't write it all on the board, even. Uh, I don't know if I've got everything y'all said represented anyway, but we, we, could, we could write more. And we, like I've always said, we need bigger boards in this class. <laughs> uh, but what else? Um, like I say, I don't yeah, I don't know that it's the same word. I will look that up because I, I wanted to pursue that, but I don't think it was the same word. Was I'll go word. check it out. I think it's the literal, it's root. Um, Is it the word for root? Okay, go ahead with your text. Still, same idea that he is going to come forth and bear this fruit. Um, okay. So. Yes. I think the ideas are tied together, but I don't know if it's the same word. Because Isaiah 11.1 is a passage that prophesies of a root that will come from the stem of Jesse that's ultimately going to be king. And obviously Jesus is the reference there to Isaiah 11. Anything else? When we were talking about the Lord of hosts, I thought of Jesus saying he could, if he chose, command 12 legions of angels. Exactly. That's a good point. Uh, You know, in Matthew 26, uh, it's about 52 to 54. Don't you know I have it, you know, I could pray to my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels. Uh, Matthew 26, 52 through 54. That's, that's a good point. And Jesus is God of the armies of heaven. Jesus is not going to the cross out of weakness, but in spite of strength. Very good, guys. Okay. Well, I hate to do this, didn't expect this, but I have to stop five minutes early. <laughs> we finish. I want to stop. And, and uh, Isaiah, would you lead us in prayer?